would open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20. Today's message is is a little bit different than our usual one, and I'll tell you in in just a bit why that is and, and what brought us here. Before I do, let me read this text for us and pray. So Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, it says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Father, as we come before your word and reflect upon all that Christ has done and what that means for us in this place, give us grace, Lord. Humble our hearts. By your spirit, convict us of of just what we're doing here and what it means that we have access to your throne by the blood of Jesus. Encourage us, fill us with hope, the hope of glory that is Christ. And give us grace to trust you all the more. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Last week, um, as I was watching the service from a screen in my bed with the flu, I felt homesick. I had this feeling watching everybody on the screen and feeling very distant. And I felt homesick. And that, that might sound odd. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just the season I'm in. Maybe, um, maybe it's all the pressure of trying to be a faithful father, husband, pastor, friend, and student. Maybe it was the cold medicine. <laughs> maybe it was the, the lack of food or the lack of sleep. And I don't doubt that all those things had some effect on my feelings that morning. I don't doubt that at all. But what I really believe that it was, was a reminder of just how much this gathering means. Just what is happening in here and what it means for us. You know, I'm not just talking about personal preference or how we feel at Providence about this gathering. This is not something that is optional or something that, that varies from denomination to denomination. I'm talking about something that is real because it's God intended. I'm talking about something that God has done in bringing us together and what we're reading about here, and what Christ has done in calling us to enter the holy places. You know, you might find a place that's more energetic, more exciting, more accommodating, more inviting, more engaging. You might find all of those things elsewhere, but you will not find a place on the face of the planet that is more glorious than the gathering of God's people for worship. Amen? There is nothing more glorious on all the face of the planet. Do we believe that? You know, sometimes, sometimes we don't act like it. Let me just say that, right? And I'm not speaking as... Uh, as someone on higher ground here. This is not my pastoral perspective. This is one center to another in this sense, saying my stubborn heart doesn't 
always realize just what's happening in this place. My stubborn heart needs this truth. And I have a feeling that, that you might need it too. That's why we're here this morning. We're here to come before God's word to think about the importance of this gathering. And I want to state the, the central idea of this, this message very simply and very plainly at the beginning. And it's this, the gathering of God's people for worship is the greatest display of God's glory on earth. The gathering of God's people for worship, what we're doing right here, right now, this is the greatest display of God's glory on earth. That's a, that's a powerful reality. That's what we're reading about here when we look to Hebrews and it says, we have confidence to enter the holy places and draw near to God. That is what we're doing here. And that's why the message is titled Sacred Space, because this, friends, is a sacred space. This is a sacred space, not because of how we dress it up, not because of how we dress ourselves up, not because of anything else except that when we come here, we come to meet with God. This is a sacred space because when we come together like this, we are meeting with our holy God. So as we think about that idea, there's, there's two things that we're going to see that I want us to see as we come to, to this passage in Hebrews 10. And, and that this involves looking back. The first thing we're going to see is that the holy places display God's glory on earth. That's the first thing we're going to see. The second thing that we're going to see is that God's people gather for worship in the holy places. Now, I was uh, given the privilege of speaking on holiness in the New Covenant a few months ago at the Gospel Forum Conference. And that's really where this message has come out of, because in my time preparing for that, I was looking at Hebrews and, and looking at how Christ and his priesthood has transformed our worship. I looked at the, the transformative work of Christ as our priest in the New Covenant. But then I also looked at how there is a transformed life that we are to live as a priesthood of believers. And all this flows out of what Christ has done, and we see it right here in Hebrews 10. But as I was doing that study, there was a, a phrase that kept popping up that caught my eye and prompted further study. It was this phrase, holy places. That phrase, holy places, is used seven times in the New Testament all in Hebrews. And every time that it's used, except for the last two, it's referring to the past, and it's referring to what Christ has done. But in this passage right here in Hebrews 10, 19, it's talking about us. It's talking about us entering the holy places. And then later on in chapter 13, it's talking about how those priests in that old system, they didn't have access to those holy places like we do. Now, in order to help us to see the significance of this statement in Hebrews 10, 19, we need, to, we need to look back, right? Recently, we were going through an adult Bible study talking about the, these three different contexts for interpreting any passage of Scripture. Some of you might remember that. Some of you have probably already forgotten. That was a few weeks ago. But anytime we come to a passage of Scripture, there's at least three contexts that we need to consider. First is the immediate context right here in front of us. What is the writer of Hebrews saying to us? What kind of language is he using? Who is he talking to? What do these words mean? How does it fit together? What's the, what's the genre of this text? That's the immediate context. In this case, 
the writer of Hebrews is assuming a whole lot more than what we see on the page. He's assuming an understanding of that old covenant system of sacrifice and priesthood. And so for us to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying, we have to look back. We have to look back at that other context, the historical context, to see all of the things that the writer of Hebrews is expecting us to know. And you might guess, I'm not going to be able to tell you everything here this morning. We're not going to be able to get into all of those things, but there is one idea, one central idea that I want us to think about. We're going to look back through Scripture to see it, and it is this, that the holy places display God's glory on earth. So that when the writer of Hebrews is talking about these holy places, there is a picture in the mind of these believers, and that picture is God's glory resting. God's glory resting on a place, a place that no one else had access to except for the priests into one area and the high priest into the other area, the holy place and the most holy place. But again, we're going we're to step back for a moment here. Before we even come to what Hebrews is saying, we're going to step back for a moment and think about this. What, is these, what are these holy places and what are they doing? And their most basic function, the holy places of the Old Testament, was God's dwelling place, the place where he meets with his people, and the place where his glory rests. And we see this all the way back in creation. In Isaiah 66, where the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? The point is not that God doesn't need a temple. Certainly, God doesn't need a temple. The point is that all of creation, in one sense, is God's temple. All of creation. And we would imagine that we could see that in creation prior to sin, right? God's spirit covering the face of the earth in the beginning. God dwelling with his people in the garden. You know, I remember the first time I read about the garden being a temple. And my, my initial reaction to that was, where does it say that? <laughs> That's my initial reaction a lot of times when I hear something new. I'm thinking, where, where do I see this in the text? And I'm reading Genesis 1 and 2, and I'm thinking, it doesn't say temple there anywhere. It's not there. But there are certain ideas in Scripture that require us to look at a broader context in order to understand. And when we go forward, when we fast forward to the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness, think for a moment, if, if, if you remember these passages and how that temple was designed. Think of all the images of pomegranates and palms, all the, the colors and all the threads, and, and how there were cherubim guarding the most holy place. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the garden, doesn't it? It reminds you how when Adam and Eve sinned and they were kept out, there were two cherubim guarding that garden. This is a picture that God has given in the tabernacle and later in the temple of God's dwelling place on earth. And we see it back in the garden. But we know what happens there, don't we? We know what happened in the garden. Sin disrupted God's fellowship with his people. Sin brought a break in God's presence among his people, and therefore they were cast out. And that same separation is seen all throughout the Old Testament. The holy places were no longer places where we were welcome. The holy places were separate, hence the term holy, right? Holy because we're not 
In Exodus 25, 8, God makes clear that this is the purpose of the temple when he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God's telling us the purpose of the holy places right there. And if that wasn't clear later on, there's another name he uses for this place, and it's the tent of meeting. In Exodus 29, he says, there I will meet with the people of Israel. This is Exodus 29, beginning in verse 43. If you want to jot that down. It says, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. The meeting place of God is made holy because his glory rests there. That is the place where God's people go to meet with him. And in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, most of the saints could only see that from a distance. And they had one who would go and by proxy meet with God for them and bring the sacrifice into those holy places. What Christ has done has radically changed how we approach God because it's changed the location and the nature of those holy places. And we're going to see that in a few minutes. But I want to continue tracing this idea. So what happens when they construct the temple? In Exodus 40, when they construct the temple, what happens? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to turn to Exodus 40 right now. And in Exodus chapter 40, here's what happens. They finish building the temple. Right at the end of verse 34, it says, so Moses finished the work. What happens next? Some of you know this. For a Bible drill, you could be calling this out, but I'm going to read it for us, okay? Exodus chapter 40, beginning of verse 34, it says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord descended on this place, and they saw it. You know, when we, when we read something like that, and we think about all that they had access to, and then we see them rebelling later on and offering worship to other gods, we're like, these guys, were, they were fools. How could they possibly be worshiping other gods when they have this cloud of the glory of God descending on this tent? But the reality then, just like now, is that our sinful hearts are not satisfied with the display of God's glory. That is why we're not satisfied many times with just coming together and singing and sitting around the Word. That is why so many people today feel the need to imitate the glory cloud with fog machines in service, <laughs> right? It's because, it's because this isn't enough. This isn't enough for us. In our sinful hearts, we want something more, but the problem is that we don't see what's happening here. We don't see the true nature of what happens when we gather for worship. This place right now, what we are doing, we are meeting with God. We are meeting with God in this place right now. We don't need the glory cloud. We have the hope of glory in our hearts. We are God's temple. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Give me, give me just a moment. <laughs> That's not the only time we see the glory cloud descending, is it? There's another time. Because we had the tabernacle moving through the wilderness, and every time the cloud lifted, they would move, they would follow, and the cloud would rest again where they settled. And Joshua brings that into the promised land, and it remains the place of God's glory. So much later, and David, David looking around from that hill of Jerusalem, 
says, I've got this beautiful house for myself, but I want to build a house for the Lord. Not a tabernacle, I want to build a house for the Lord. God tells him he can't do that because he's a man of war. But he does say that his son's going to do it, right? So Solomon builds the temple. And when Solomon builds the temple in 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon offers a prayer right as they finish constructing this. And I didn't notice this until this morning. Excuse me. I didn't notice this until this morning. But this is just an aside here. We'll come right back. At the end of the service, we're going to sing how good it is from Psalm 133, right? Reflecting upon this, what we're doing here when brothers dwell in unity, okay? But if you were to look in the Psalms, you would see Psalm 132 is a prayer for God to make his dwelling place among men, to make his dwelling place here. And it quotes 2 Chronicles 6 and Solomon's prayer for the temple. It quotes that. Then it goes to how, brothers, how good it is when brothers dwell in unity. Psalm 134, which I'm going to bring back for us later, is a reflection of God dwelling among his people. A request for God to make his dwelling among people, a praise of how good it is we dwell in unity, and a, request, and, and, a, and a praise for God dwelling among his people. That's because when we come together in unity, this is the expression of God dwelling among his people. Okay, that was the aside. We're coming back here now to 2 Chronicles 6. At the end, the prayer is this, verses 41 and 42. It says, And now arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. 2 Chronicles 7 Right now, the temple is constructed. Solomon prays for the temple. Second Chronicles 7, beginning of verse 1. And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven. And it consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And just like before, there was a visible reaction among the priests. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Once again, we see God's house being built, a resting place, holy places for God, God's glory resting, the glory cloud, this time fire coming down from heaven. And that would be the place from this time on until, until what? Until once again, God's people rebelled. And it brought a separation between his glory, his presence, and his people. So we read about that later on. And, and it's, ironic, it's ironic that we find out about his glory departing from the temple in Ezekiel, in visions. See, when God made his glory to rest in these places, there's a narrative to follow. Things are clear. We see things clearly. God says this. God's people do this. God's, glory, God's place is built, and God's glory comes down. But when God's glory leaves, it's not so clear. The people were, were blinded by their sin. They couldn't see what was happening. They couldn't see that their departure was going to once again disrupt fellowship with God and disrupt this visible representation of his presence. And so what Ezekiel tells us is that God's glory is going to leave his temple and his temple is going to be destroyed because of the people. Once again, a separation like the garden. But I want, I want you to think about this. What happened when sin broke fellowship between God and man in the garden? 
We see a curse on a serpent and a promise embedded there, right? Isn't it interesting that when we come to the exile in Babylon and the destruction of the temple, what do we find in the middle of all that? A promise. In the middle of what looks like the worst thing that could ever happen, God gives his people a promise. Jeremiah 31 Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, is the longest text of the Old Testament that's quoted in the New. That's the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament. You want to know where it's quoted? Hebrews. This is the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New, but I'm going to read it here for us in Jeremiah 31, where God says this. Remember, this is in the context of the destruction of the temple, of God's people in exile. God God's people separated from God's glory, and, and God tells them this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. Ezekiel reflects on this promise as well. And the, the specific thing that Ezekiel, that God says through Ezekiel is that I will dwell with my people and they will know that I am the Lord. Friends, when we look at what Christ has done in the new covenant, as it relates to these holy places, I want you to hear something now that, 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 that we need to hear. I think I've said this already to some extent, but just as the holy places in the old covenant were the epicenter of God's glory on earth, the gathering of God's people in the new covenant is the epicenter of God's glory on earth. There is no greater display of God's glory on earth than when the saints gather for worship. This is the greatest display of God's glory on earth. When we jump forward into the new covenant, the New Testament, a few other things we see that are relevant to this whole, these holy places. For instance, Christ at his death. What happens when Christ dies in relation to the holy places? There's a physical thing that happens, a, a reality that was a sign to all people, and it was that when Christ cried out and gave up his spirit, the curtain tore in two. This was a picture of the fact that God had opened a way through the curtain that is the flesh of Christ by his sacrifice, a reality that we're going to celebrate around this table today, that Christ was torn for us, the veil has been removed we have access to the holy places. And that is what we're doing here today. We are entering the holy places through the veil that is his flesh. Christ had begun to fulfill what he told his disciples he would do. In John 2, he said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Christ's body on the cross, broken for us was the beginning of that, and the, the, the tearing of the veil was the evidence of that. But there's another moment that happens in Acts 2. Something I hadn't, 
I hadn't thought about before in relation to this. There's something that happens in Acts 2 that points back to what God did at the construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the tent. Let's turn to Acts 2 for a moment. In Acts 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. God's people gathered for worship. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What do we see here? We see the new covenant version of the glory cloud descending on the temple. That is exactly what we find in Acts 2. Because what Christ had done radically altered the way that we approach God and the place where we approach him. We no longer need to go to Jerusalem to look for a building where someone goes in on our behalf. Christ has entered the heavenly of heavenlies, the holy of holies on our behalf, and has opened access to us to that altar. In the old covenant, the the covenant was written on tablets of stone and placed inside the ark. In the new covenant, God's law is written on our hearts. We are a dwelling place for God. That's what it says to us in 1 Corinthians 3 when when, when Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You all collectively. There's a y'all version of the Bible that would help in moments like this because the y'all version of the Bible shows you where all the plural yous are, right? Y'all are God's temple, not you, Bob. I mean, that's, I mean, it's true. Each one of us individually, we have the Spirit, right? But what he's talking about specifically is the gathering of the saints for worship. That's what he's talking about. Don't let these things come into your fellowship. Let me just say briefly that we, we abuse that word, fellowship. Fellowship is not about finger foods. And, and we laugh because we know it's true. Fellowship is a shared commitment to a common goal. That's what fellowship is. Everywhere else throughout history, except in Southern Baptist cultures, where it involves finger food. Fellowship. We've been brought into fellowship. We share in this common bond. That bond is represented in this table. We have a bond in blood. That is our fellowship. Ephesians 2, 19-22, thinking of what Christ has done by His Spirit, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is God's temple. The gathering of God's people for worship is the resting place of the glory of God. His glory cloud has descended in the giving of the Spirit, and He is with us even now. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 4-6, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All of this happens when we draw near together. When we enter the holy places through corporate worship. That is what we are doing here today. All right, now we come to Hebrews. <laughs> all of that's background. See, all of, all, of this, all of this stuff that's happening needs to be seen if we're going to understand what it means that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ. So when we come to Hebrews 10, 19, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time here, but when we come to Hebrews 19 and we see that we have confidence to enter the holy places, we need to understand something I've said over and over again, which we need to hear over and over again because our stubborn minds won't just hold on to it. When we come together for worship, this is the greatest display of God's glory on earth. We are meeting with God. What hope we have that Christ has gone into the holy places for us and has redefined that for us, has opened up a new way for God's glory to rest here on earth, and it happens when his people gather for worship. There's a day coming when there will be no temple. There's a day coming when there will be no temple. We are God's temple today, but there's a day coming when there will be no temple. We read about that in Revelation. In Revelation 21, it says that, 21 verses 2 and 3 says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We have the first fruits of this reality. God's kingdom is on earth now when his people gather. That is the visible representation of the kingdom of God. But what happens later on in, verse, in chapter 21 of Revelation is he says in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. We will forever be in his presence on that day. But until that day, what does all of this mean for us? God's people gather for worship in the holy places. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we practically apply Hebrews 10, 19, and following? I think, I think the immediate answer that I would give to that is we need to believe. We need to believe that the gathering of God's people for worship is the greatest display of glory on earth. And the reason we don't live that out practically enough is because we don't truly believe it. I don't mean that we don't have an inkling of faith. I believe that we believe it, if that makes sense to you. I look around this room and I see people who I know value this gathering. But even myself, I need to know this more. I need to believe this more. That's not satisfying, is it, to hear the application is believe. But that's the life we've given ourselves to, isn't it? The command here is to believe. I'm not going to leave you hanging, though. I'm going to give you some practical ideas of what this looks like. So on the next slide, what does it look like for us to come together believing this truth? 
What does it look like for us to come together believing this truth? How do we enter the holy places? And, and, and how do we live that out? How do we believe this better? What does it look like? It looks like prioritizing this gathering. It looks like prioritizing this gathering. Now, again, in some extent, I'm preaching to the choir. But when we see this as the greatest display of God's glory on earth, it's going to be a whole lot harder for other things to squeeze their way into our schedule, isn't it? We won't have a toss-up about, hmm, you know, I've been invited to, you know, go to this very special event. Should I go there or should I go to church? Don't, don't, don't mistake me for some form, giving some kind of form of legalism here. But if we truly understand this as the greatest display of God's glory on earth, VIP box tickets to the Super Bowl couldn't get me out of this place. When we understand this as the greatest display of God's glory on earth, we will prioritize this gathering. It looks like preparation for this gathering. What do I mean? I don't just mean the cleaning and the planning and all those other things. Those things need to happen. But even each one of you, as we believe this truth together, we need to prepare for this gathering. Prepare our hearts for this gathering. Think about what the Jews had to do in the Old Testament in order to come to those holy places. Many times they had to travel a long distance just to get to a place where they could sit and watch from a distance someone entering the holy places for them. And friends, we have access right here. I think that we can at least set our alarms. I think that we can at least pray for this time together. That's the next point of application. It looks like prayer for this gathering. Would you consider taking time out if you don't already on your Saturday night before you go to bed to pray for this gathering? How about on the Monday after to pray for the upcoming gathering? And I know there are many of you who do this. I know there are many of you who do this. But some of us don't, and we need to hear this. And when we truly see and understand what this gathering means and what this is, that's not a hard ask, is it? Pray for this gathering. It looks like praise in this gathering. You might not feel like it, but this is the greatest display of God's glory on earth. And when you can't get your emotions to follow your faith, what do you do? Praise Him anyway. Sing praise to His name. When we sing these songs, it might not be your favorite tune. I'll be honest, there's a lot of songs we sing that aren't my favorite tune. But when we sing these songs together, we are praising God together. Think about what you're saying and think about what it means in the grand scheme of things. This is the, this is the pinnacle of our week. This isn't the conclusion. We don't come here just to get our fix or get our fill. We come here to give our worship. And this is the only place on, on the planet where you can come and give everything you have and leave with more than you came with. Amen? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Finally, it looks like persistence in this gathering. Believing this truth, believing that the gathering of God's people for worship is the greatest display of God's glory on earth. Believing that means persistence in this gathering. There are going to be times whenever it's not going to be easy to do what we're doing here today. I mean, maybe not. I'm not a prophet. Maybe, maybe things will get easier. Things aren't trending that way, though. It's not trending towards comfort. 
things are most likely going to get a whole lot harder for us. And one day, what we're doing here might be illegal. If we're believing this truth, we will persist in this gathering. This list is not revolutionary. This, this is not a mind-blowing list of things that, that portray our belief of this truth, but this is what it is. This is what it looks like to believe this truth, to understand that the gathering of God's people for worship is the greatest display of God's glory on earth. Do you believe it? Now, there might be, uh, there's bound to be some here today, if not among the children, even perhaps among the adults, that you don't know this truth in your heart. That, that Christ has not entered the holy place for you in the sense that he is not your priest and you've not trusted him with your heart. God has not given you the spirit as a guarantee for that day. If that's you, my plea for you is to turn and trust in Christ. Though your sin be as scarlet, he will wash it white as snow. There is a hope beyond the grave, and it comes in Christ alone. Turn and trust in him. But for those of us who are, who are already believing and trusting, we rejoice that God has given us one more opportunity to meet with him together. And we sing praise to God that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ Jesus, our great high priest, which we're going to celebrate in just a moment.